Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams podcast. Joining me shortly is my good friend, Luke Gromman, the founder of Forest for the Trees. I first came across Luke's work about seven years ago, and he and I eventually met for dinner in New York after what was a truly mind-boggling chain of coincidences. Since then, I have devoured just about everything he's written. And, And as much as anyone, Luke's helped me shape my thinking and join dots that always seemed tantalizingly out of reach for me. Now, recently, he published a piece which began with this quote from Tobias Straumann's book, 1931, Debt, Crisis, and the Rise of Hitler. The quote reads like this. The politically practicable and the economically possible were at war. A contemporary observer aptly summarized the tragedy unfolding between 1919 and 1931. The struggle was like some long drawn out conflict on a hillside where political forces endeavoured repeatedly to advance uphill and on occasion even succeeded in doing so for a time, while the prevailing economic factors drove them steadily downhill. That quote and the 17 odd pages that followed it in Luke's report lit so many light bulbs in my head, I just had to get Luke onto the podcast to talk about what he'd written. Now, what follows is a wonderful conversation about debt, crisis, politics, rampant stimulus, inflation, deflation, the seemingly predictable path towards yield curve control, and the likely consequences once we get there. Enjoy. Luke, mate, it's so good to talk to you again. It's been been way too long, my friend. (laughs) <laughs> Likewise, it's. Uh, I was excited to get the opportunity to sit down and chat, so I'm. I'm looking forward to it. You know, you and I both have a great love of history, and and we both, I know, read a lot of the same books, and both bore everybody stupid about what a great read the Lords of Finance is. But you know, what really kind of shook me into action to call you and have another chat, which which is long overdue, was a piece you wrote recently about 1931 which I've ordered. I, I can't do the Kindle thing. I just, I have to have the books. So I've ordered that. It should be with me soon. But yeah, I, I'm reading through your piece and you, better than anybody I know, have this incredible ability to dig out pertinent passages from not just past periods of time, but from you know people who've been in important situations and difficult situations throughout history and relate them to today. And, and as I read that piece going back to 1931, it, it just set all kinds of alarm bells ringing in my head. And, you know, I, I've found since I first accidentally stumbled upon your work all those years ago there's nobody i know who has a greater track record of taking things that i spend hours sitting around trying to conceptualize and work out what it is that's disturbing me and then i pick up your work and i go yeah that's it that's it he just wrote out exactly what i was thinking so look i what i'd love to talk about today is is that piece in particular but on a much broader canvas some of the stuff you've also written about recently in terms of stimulus, in terms of growth rates, you know, there is so much going on right now that I feel is incredibly important and there aren't that many people talking about it. So that's a very broad introduction to the conversation, but perhaps what we could do is start with that 1931 piece and I'll let you kind of sketch it out and and I'm going to, I've got plenty of questions for you. Sure. So, so like you said, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, a big fan of economic history and, and a big part of why that is, is I mean, the old investing saw, right? It's never different this time. And I think it's valuable to look back in time and see how humans reacted because in the end, particularly when you're focused on the economic side of it, it's, it always comes down to greed and fear. It's greed and fear and greed and fear doesn't change whether it's now or whether it's 1931 or whether it's 1831 or it's 5,000 BC, it's greed and fear. And so, uh, Someone pointed out to me, and I, I forgive, uh, please forgive me, I don't remember who, this book, 1931, uh, uh, I think it was Debt, Germany, Debt, and the Rise of Hitler, but it's by Tobias Strauman, and started reading the book, and it's a very easy read, I think it's 200, 220 pages, because it's focused almost entirely on the year 1931, which was really when the global financial crisis uh, really began spiraling out of control, and 
The thing that grabbed me most about it, there was a line that said the politically practicable and the economically possible were at war with each other. Yeah. And uh, from the years 1919 to 1933, and uh, really came to a head in 31. And what was one of the things that fascinated in terms of what that actually meant was the German uh, economy was a twin deficit economy. They were running deficits on fiscal deficits. They were running trade deficits in the aftermath of the war. And they also had these massive war reparations that were uh, inflation adjusting. And they were so that they have an they've also borrowed a bunch of money away from the war reparations from foreigners to finance all these 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 projects, et cetera. And so they have external debt and they have internal debt. And as the global uh, economy slows down beginning in the late 1920s into the 30s, uh, the uh, the Germans were basically, as I put it, trying to ride two horses with one ass, which was trying to satisfy these domestic creditors and the external creditors. And there's actually a passage in the book um, where uh, the, 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 uh, the chance or the the chancellor of Germany at the time, Brüning, says our strategy is going to be to tell the external creditors, particularly as it relates to the war reparations, that we're going to keep paying the war reparations. While at the same time, we're going to tell the domestic audience that is sick of the austerity that we keep putting on them so that we can repay the war reparations, that we're not going to repay the war reparations. And so it's this, this 1931 is just a lot of what grabbed me about it as it relates to today is, is once again, we have the United States, which is a twin deficit nation on both the fiscal deficit side and on the trade deficit side. We have massive external debt that we have racked up over the last uh, 50, 70 years. And we have our own version of war reparations, inflation adjusting war reparations, which are in particular Medicare, Medicaid, mm -hmm. and to a lesser extent, Social Security, because people say, well, we, we only owe our debt in dollars, so it's not a problem. And for the external portion of that, that's that's technically true. But we owe for Medicare, Medicaid, we don't owe dollars. We owe healthcare goods. We owe healthcare services, and and the Fed cannot print those. And so, there's that same dynamic of that. But there's this in the particularly in the aftermath of COVID, which really set this process into uh, high gear. This dynamic of the Fed trying to ride two horses with that one ass, where they are, uh, and we can see it now with 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 Biden, where we're trying to convince the domestic audience that the stimmy checks are going to keep coming, that, that there's nothing, there's going to be no reforms of entitlements, that defense is going to get everything they want and more. All this stuff we're spending money on domestically, while at the same time, we're trying to convince the treasury market that don't worry, you're, we're not going to debase your dollars. And yeah. this, as I read this book, it was really uh, in the end of February uh, that I read this book, maybe very early March. And so that was really... February was really the first time where we saw the treasury market get a little bit of indigestion. Mm -hmm. And that was in the aftermath of uh, Biden coming out and saying, yes, we have a recovery. And yes, the vaccines are going great. And yes, we just did uh, a big stimulus and we're going to do another trillion nine. And the treasury market kind of goes, what? what? And, and backs up a little bit. And then <laughs> two weeks after that is we might do another three after that. Actually, check that. It might be four. Might and, be four, yeah. <laughs> like, it's a bidding war. Do I hear five? Do I hear five? So uh, to us, it was a very apropos time to read that book. The story is very apropos. And the book was written in 2020, uh, interestingly enough. And so it's really this uh, dynamic of, of trying to satisfy two diametrically opposite constituencies at the same time in an economic environment that makes it very, very, or increasingly difficult to do so. So that's that was um, sort of the the, I guess the, the, the two minute version of, of yeah. what grabbed me about that book. No, and, it, and it's funny that, that quote, um, which I quoted at the top of the show to, to introduce this piece, it just, it slapped me like a piece of two by four in the face because it's, it's exactly where we are now, right? You, you, you have to tell everybody that the treasury and the dollar are, are, are good and solid and we're, you know, we're going to protect those. But at the same time, you have to trash them domestically. And, you know, look, look, I think everybody knows that domestic politics always trumps international politics when it comes down to it, because there ain't no voters overseas, right? If you want to stay in power, they're only coming internally. And so we find ourselves in that exact situation that, that you 
describe. You know, we have we have this these huge debts. We have enormous amount of holders of treasuries. We have an incredible need to issue who knows how many more. And so you've got to keep all that going. And th- and that's why reading those quotes and reading the whole of that piece of yours made me realize just how quickly this whole thing can unravel once that belief is lost, once people start joining the dots together, and once they start to kind of see the writing on the wall. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's, you know, it's interesting in the book itself, there's, I mean, there's, there's important, some important differences that, that have to be considered for uh, how quickly this can happen and, and how it can look potentially, right? So uh, the biggest, of course, is that we're the global reserve currency, Germany was not. And that's a very big one. And quite frankly, that's been the thing that has kept us from this yeah. problem uh, up until this point. Uh, the political situation in Germany was very different. It was much more politically toxic. You had hundreds of political assassinations uh, all around the country. Um, you had leftists out in the street fighting the police. Oh, wait, that was happening last summer in the United States right. as well. Um, so it's so it was more, far, far more extreme. But the point is, is that the U.S. political situation has in the last year gotten much more untenable in terms of communicating to our policymakers that uh, austerity is a politically tenable option. And then the other is that the United States is just way bigger than Germany. So I I don't think the currency destroying hyperinflation that Weimar saw in 1919 to 1923 is on the table because at the right price of everything, the U.S. can produce just about everything it needs. And we saw that in the oil market yeah. and from 1998 to, to 2008 when the price went up. You know, the dollar fell against oil by 90 percent and U.S. got a huge shale industry out of it. So those are some things that are that are quite different about it. But the big pieces really there are fairly similar and like I said, on the political side, that was really where it kind of grabbed me too, is, is people often think about the German situation and, and Hitler coming to power as, well, that was because of the hyperinflation. And well, yeah, it's, well, yeah. it's only it, it, technically, yes. But what, it, what this book makes very clear is that, and this is another one of the big differences um, that is not in favor of the United States, in my view, uh, as it relates to how this is going to play out is, in 1931, the U.S. was in a very similar position as the U.S. and in, uh, the Ger- Germany was in the same position as the U.S. from a from a trade balance perspective, from a war reparation perspective, as the U.S. is today. And their choice was simple: we either print a bunch of money and pay for it, or we try to implement austerity to uh, basically create the savings to pay this stuff. And because the hyperinflation of 1919 to 1923 was so fresh in everybody's memory. There was just no institutional uh, desire to print the money. And so they tried to go with austerity to prevent themselves from defaulting on a sovereign basis, which ironically, they ended up defaulting on a sovereign basis. And their, their, you know, their bonus prize for the austerity choice was Hitler. And right. So which is a, a hell of a bonus prize for everybody, unfortunately. And you contrast that with the U.S. today. There is no institutional fear of inflation whatsoever. And again, not to say that we're going to go to a Weimar hyperinflation, because I I really don't think that's the case. Uh, But I think we're seeing real time a choice being made to inflate away this debt. And to your point, the treasury market's very, very big. The US dollar debt market is enormous. And it is a very big and powerful animal, right? And, And it's you know, it's effectively a big sleeping dragon and the Fed's effectively trying to kill it while it's still sleeping. And yeah. if it wakes up, you know, Katie bar the door, the Fed's going to be, you know, it's going to have a tiger by his tail. Uh, to make well, my metaphor. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, right? Because um, the, the there, there are signs of it stirring, you know, we've seen some shaky auctions lately. Um, and that's always a telltale sign when you start to see those bid to cover ratios coming down it's it's always a telltale sign but we you know we've seen little periods of that we saw it back in kind of 2011 we had a, another one of these shaky periods that was probably the most recent one um but every time it's kind of been gotten back under control and it's kind of calmed down and so yeah it, it, like like with many other facets of this whole rolling crisis people have just become kind of inured to it and and, and we, we, we've been worried about that a couple of times before and it, and it hasn't been a problem so we're not going to worry about it this time and that Perhaps more than anything else to me is something I see spreading 
right across markets, whether it be the you know the the Archegos blow up this week, right? Which which anyone who's been in markets for any period of time knows is not done yet. Uh, knows that it, it is a sign of some potentially tremendous unwinds, you know, unruly unwinds coming, and yet markets shrug it off. But when you go back to the the 30s and you look at this austerity idea, it seemed like that was one lesson that was learned this time around. Because after after 08, you know, governments did something which I found curious. They they talked about austerity, but did nothing of the sort. In fact, they did the opposite. They expanded the debt. You know, and and I I never really understood that because when you tell people you're going to be austere, it upsets them even if you're not. So why go out and upset your constituents with something you're not actually going to do? Who are you playing to? Are you playing to the bond market to try and make them continue to buy your debt because you're going to be you're disciplined about it? But at the same time, you're kind of upsetting the people who are going to vote for you who feel like they're getting screwed, even if they weren't, if, if that makes any sense. So am I right that that was completely on its head? And if so, what does that say for what happens for this next point? Because now we've said, okay, there's no austerity. It's stimulus up the wazoo. I, I, I think that's what happened effectively was they, they talked about some austerity. And you could make the case that here in the United States, things like Obamacare effectively was a version of austerity where you were seeing um, significant. Was, there were articles in the Wall Street Journal when Obamacare was first being rolled out that part of the goal was to reduce the deficit by pushing the cost of health care onto U.S. taxpayers. Um, and I think an underreported, uh, underappreciated facet in Donald Trump's election in 2016 was sort of this independent swing voter small business that was honked off that they would at that point had three straight years of 20, 30, 40, 100 percent increases in their uh, in, in their Obamacare premiums and their health care premiums. Um, so there was, I think, this sort of an austerity. And but I ultimately think your point that the choice the, the the choice has always been once once you know, Triffin's dilemma is, is we've got the reserve currency we got the primary reserve asset and pretty much everything we've done since uh, the uh, since the early eighties has been uh, to subjugate the U.S. middle and U.S. working classes uh, in order to support uh, the treasury market and to support the dollar and I think when you look at it in those terms in the aftermath of 08, there were, I think, a lot of what the stimulus, a lot of what the balance sheet growth that we saw at the Fed and other central banks around the world was still very much in tune with that, uh, or at least more along the lines of that, subjugating the middle and working classes uh, uh, to support the dollar uh, and the U.S. Treasury bond market. And you can kind of see that where contracts were not broken with mortgages, right? Nobody, uh -huh. nobody got mortgage forgiveness. Um, contracts were kept for everyone on Wall Street, if you had a contract, even if your bank had gone bust, they bailed you out, and you got par on your contract. So there was this, I think the zeitgeist there. And, and so what's interesting to me in all of this is you're seeing that zeitgeist change in a lot of ways. And it, with the COVID, um, you know, um, our friend Lynn Alden has a great chart where she looks at and she contrasts what happened in a way where you had balance sheet growth and reserve growth and fiscal growth. And the fiscal growth was, you know, the, the, the prior two were really big and the fiscal spending growth was up, but it wasn't yeah. crazy. And you contrast that with what's happened over the last 12 months and the fiscal growth you can't find with reserve because it's effectively fiscal growth being monetized by the Fed. Um, and so there's there's actual, uh, there was actually a move in the, in the last year to, for the first time in 40 plus years to subjugate the dollar and the bond market uh, to support the U.S. middle and working classes. And I think that's what had to be done. It made sense. We saw it in markets. And I think, though, that just judging by the reactions of some people that I would call um, chief uh, architects of the whole subjugate the middle and working class to support the dollar system, people like Larry Summers, Mm -hmm. uh, in the last two, three months to hear him come out and saying, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, you know, this might be too much. We're going to have the worst inflation since the 70s. That to me was a big signpost that what Biden's doing is like this, this whole stimulus, this is going to keep going. Uh, there's this isn't going to stop. There's, I think, one of the bigger, if not the biggest misperception in markets today is that this stretch of the last three to six months where we've had 
GDP growing five to 10, while the 10 years at one and a half, that's just a quarter or two. Don't worry about that. I, I think we're going to have two years plus of that. And to your point, that implies we're going to come up in the next few months. So the, the bond market's going to go, wait a second. Um, and I don't know if that's a political event. I don't know if that's the announcement of the, the stimulus after this next stimulus or what causes that. But that, I think, is really the difference this time in terms of um, versus 08, this, this dynamic where they are actually subjugating the dollar and the treasury market to support the U.S. middle and working class for the first time in 40 years. Talk a little bit about why that matters, that, that this idea, because you've written about it, and it is important, this idea that GDP growth is going to dwarf rates for some considerable time. Talk about the, the dominoes that that sets in motion, because they're incredibly important. <laughs> yeah, so if you look back to the last time the U.S. was in close to as bad a fiscal uh, and debt position as it was as it is now, in the aftermath of COVID was in the immediate aftermath of World War II and the debt to GDP was call it 110% or so. And uh, the Fed capped yields at, uh, uh, I think it was three eighths at the short end, two and a half at the 10 year. And basically any, any, any 10 year that treasury wanted to issue, the Fed would buy it two and a half, no questions asked. And inflation took off. And then in 1951, that, that uh, there was a Fed treasury accord that said the Fed's gonna yep. move away and, and, and stop doing that. Uh, and I think that's starting to be much more well understood, uh, that, that whole dynamic of how that happened from 45 to 51. What I think is still less well understood is that U.S. debt to GDP went from, call it 100, 110 percent in 1945 to about 25 to 30 percent by 1971 uh, in the 1980 timeframe. Um, and uh, and then by, by 1971, and that 25-year stretch uh, U.S. nominal GDP consistently for the vast majority, meaning like 90% plus of the time, grew at a nominal GDP grew to 500 to 800 basis point premium to long-term U.S. government debt yields. And that basically, so yes, we had, we, we rebuilt the world. We had a massive productivity boom. We, we had massive infrastructure with the Eisenhower highway system. We rebuilt the world. Uh, we fought a war in Vietnam and in Korea, uh, but we also repressed the heck out of our bondholders. They mm -hmm. went from, you know, wearing, you know, diamonds to wearing cubic zirconia to wearing Cracker Jack on a string, you know, to, to borrow Raul's uh, phrase. And that, that just, that was part of how we got out of that. And so I think when we look at this today, that's going to be the game plan again. Uh, it's increasingly, it, it's really the only mathematical possible game plan. We know that. We know that uh, last fall you had people like Jason Furman, who's a, a close advisor to the Biden administration, and Larry Summers, write a paper. Uh, and it was an incredible, you know, they presented it with the Brookings Institute to guys like Bernanke, Rogoff, right. Olivier Blanchard. Uh, I mean, these, these are a who's who of, of, the, of the policymakers. And this report was one of the more incredible things I've read in a while. We, and, and, I, and I wrote about it. It was... Uh, the gist of it was, look, as long as we keep R below G, in other words, as long as we keep the interest rate on the debt below uh, the, uh, the growth rate, nominal growth rate of GDP, then the present value of, of nominal GDP is infinite and we will never have a debt problem. And mathematically, his math is 100% <laughs> yeah, true. Right. It's wonkish, it's, but it's absolutely right. Now, implied in this is we're going to repress the hell out of the bond market. The Fed's going to have to cap yields and the dollar's going to suffer. And they conveniently left that part out of that whole conversation. Um, but that, so you, you can see it moving in this direction. And one of the big things that, I, that to me is so obvious that I'm not hearing anybody talk about is, as we're seeing, hey, where the market's starting to discount rate hikes in 2022 already and, and, and. and this is going to be the first cycle in living memory for any of us where once inflation gets too hot, the Fed's going to have to cut rates. They're going to have to loosen policy. Yeah. They're going to have to cap yields because remember, and people say, well, it'll be like the 70s. Maybe, but in 1971, that the GDP was, was 25, 30%. We had young demographics. We were still building out infrastructure. We were still rebuilding the world. Our relative economic position was far greater than it is today. The bond markets, the, the rate yields were allowed to be a release valve in the 70s because they could, they could go up without bankrupting us. That's not true anymore. Yeah. You know, the, the U.S. United States DVO1 of, of a 100 basis point rise in interest rates when your debt to GDP is 130% and you've got, 
you know, a two trillion a year in entitlements that you're spending on a on a pay-as-you-go basis, you can't let rates rise. They simply cannot be allowed to happen. So it's to your point, I think we're much closer to, you know, this big dragon waking up and going, you know, wait, I'm the sucker at the table. You know, that's that's not yeah. good. Well, you know, it's interesting what you say there because it's a simple phrase, but it it's so important. When you say they can't let rates rise, that's the reality of this, right? Because it, this is not some conceptual thing. This is, if rates rise not too far from here, you're losing 50% of your tax revenues in debt servicing costs and the whole game is up, right? So so, let, let, so let's talk about this idea of yield curve control because it's something that um, you know people have been talking about now for, for a little while. And like everything else these days, it's got a cool acronym YCC. You know, we can we can we can make it seem so much more innocuous by just so just throwing YCC in occasionally. But the whole idea of yield curve control um, is something obviously the Japanese have tried uh, successfully. Interestingly enough, right, because they step up there and they say, "Hey, all right, we are unlimited bid for the ten year here," and no one's really challenged them. And so, optically, to other central banks who are looking at this thing, they go. You know what? The BOJ have done this and they haven't really had to put their hand in their pockets. I suspect, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think if the, if the, the Fed and the Treasury do that, there's a whole different response from a whole bunch of willing <laughs> sellers out there. So so talk a little bit about mechanically how yield curve control might work and the and the potential pitfalls once it's in, uh, implemented. Sure. So the mechanics of it are pretty straightforward. Like you said, it's it's the Fed steps up and says we will buy every 10-year treasury at Two, two and a half. And the release valve is the balance sheet. Whatever the, however far the balance sheet has to rise, whatever dollar supply growth has to rise to maintain that rate will be done. Um, as far as why it's different, I 100% agree with you that I think the, the, the experience for the US if, if slash when YCC is implemented will be different than Japan for a number of different reasons. So if you look at Japan, Japan is a a, a, a has one of the biggest current account surpluses in the world. Uh, the U.S. has the biggest current account deficit in the world. Um, so, so Japan has an offset to the, to what they're doing on the fiscal side. They're actually a trade creditor uh, yeah. uh, to the extent in excess of their their fiscal deficits that they are monetizing. That's that's in a very important. So, step one is we are already diametrically opposite of Japan uh, in that way. Uh, Japan, with their current account surpluses uh, that they have accrued over decades of trade, they have made investments around the world. And so their net international investment position, I want to say, is 40 to 50 percent of GDP positive. So Japan has the option of at any time saying, you know what, U.S., we want all our money back. You know, Europe, we want all our money back. And it's primarily you know, in the U.S. So uh, in contrast, again, the U.S. has a net international investment position of negative 65% of GDP. And, and by way of context, that number was negative eight as recently as, as 2008. So we have effectively hocked our family silver, hocked our assets uh, to help pay for the recovery that we have had for the last 12 or 14 years. And so, again, we find the United States diametrically opposite of where the U.S. is. Uh, in Japan, we have a, the fiscal side being largely financed internally. Uh, by its own populace. Again, United States diametrically opposite, historically financed externally. And when you have the demographics there, um, you have demographics and you have deflation there. Um, so if you have deflation, if you have costs of living falling while you have yield curve control, uh, that, that can work for them. We, given the level of debt and the external financing side, we, we, we can't have deflation. We need to have inflation. And so when you look at these three major factors, uh, the United States sits diametrically opposite of Japan on every one of them. Um, yeah. And yet, despite this, most economists you talk to will say, well, Japan did YCC, so if when we do YCC, it'll be fine. And you know, here we go with 20 years of, of just sort of bridges to nowhere and, you know, you know, a little bit of inflation. No, infl I don't think that's how it's going to go. I think it's going to go very differently. And the way I think it's going to go is, is the U.S. is finally forced into YCC and the Fed's balance sheet's going to go eight to tr eight trillion to 10 trillion. And then the mortgage back market's going to go, wait a second here. 
uh, and you're going to see mortgage spreads blow out on anticipation of, of coming inflation. You'll see corporate spreads blow out. Uh, you'll see junk bond spread, uh, spreads blow out. And the, Fed's balance, the Fed will then start to have to talk about mortgage, mortgage YCC right. and corporate YCC and junk YCC. And so I think contrary, again, because we are diametrically opposite on these three major important factors, I think you're going to see... Um, I think the 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 outcome of YCC in the U.S. will be a Fed balance sheet that goes eight, ten trillion, fifteen trillion, twenty-five trillion, forty trillion in I don't know eighteen to twenty-four months. And look, the, the S and P probably goes four thousand where it is today to I don't know eight thousand, and and the Dow doubles, and gold probably goes to three thousand or five thousand or eight thousand, and you know Bitcoin does you know goes to you know whatever half a million, some some really nice. big number, and and commodities go and, and home prices go. And you just have this broad sort of inflation. I think the dollar gets marked down significantly because again, no one's balance sheet can be grown faster than the feds, uh, more than the feds, faster than the feds. Uh, but to your point that you made earlier, it, I, I, the sense I get is not only do people not appreciate how different the US setup is um, as we move toward YCC relative to Japan, but then the implications of that, that that there's this expe- expect, uh, expectation that that it's going to be a linear you know move up in right. the Fed's balance sheet as it happens, and, and I think it's, I, I my base case is it's not nonlinear. We can discuss you know how nonlinear, but I, I think it's going to be much more nonlinear than people think. You know, in in one of the early episodes of the Endgame podcast that I, I do with Fleck, um, you know, we talked to Felix Ulaf, and Felix threw in a number on the Fed's balance sheet. You know, he kind of talked that and was chatting about this and that and he said and you know so i can see the fed's balance sheet going to 40 50 trillion easily and it was such a throwaway line and at the time and bearing in mind this was this was probably what six months ago not that long ago uh it stopped people in their tracks you know they're like did you hear what felix who said did you hear you know this is 40 to 50 trillion and and because it was felix people weren't like ah it's just hyperbole because that's not who felix is and felix is not one for hyperbole and I think it got a lot of people thinking, and here we are, you know, the, the compression of time that we see in financial markets and asset markets is, is extraordinary to me. And, it, and it's speeding up because here we are talking about this 40, 50 trillion. And from, from a number that six months ago in the depths of, pa- of the pandemic response was a kind of wild-eyed number that had credibility because of who was saying it and anyone who'd been thinking about it could say yeah i guess we could get there right now as we sit here today there's a path that takes us there and it's really clear for all to see and once this yield curve control is instituted with the massive foreign ownership of treasuries many of whom holders have been trying to figure out how to sell their treasuries for a while they've been gently easing towards the door you know the russians are basically out Chinese have been selling, even the Saudis have been selling. I I just try and picture what happens when the Treasury or the Fed puts a bid in the market for an unlimited amount of 10 years. Well, if you want out and you're building a, a, a parallel system and you've, you've got all these uh, agreements in place that you and I have been talking about and highlighting for a number of years now to, to transact outside the dollar system, I, I look at this yield curve control as potentially the, the the complete upending of this whole financial system. Am I am I am I way off being there? I, I don't think you are. I don't think you are at all because it's it could really be a, a huge uh, you know the the snowflake uh, uh, and in this case it would be sort of you know a giant snowball that that sets off the whole avalanche because again when you look at that net international investment position. There, there has never been a case in Japan where if they do too much, 60% of GDP is going to pull out uh, of, of their right. bond market. Um, and that's the case for the US. And it's in equities, it's in, it's in hard assets and real estate. And so again, it's this, this, it ties right back to this domestic versus external consideration when you have a net international investment position of negative 65% of GDP, right? That's, that's 13, $14 trillion uh, that foreigners own here. And so people say, well, people are short the dollar. Yeah, they might be short the dollar itself, but they are so pregnant dollar assets. Correct. It's incredible. And so 
if you if the Fed credibly says, listen, we're, we're unlimited bid on the tenure at this rate, um, you can look across the various current account balances and say, okay, well, let's say everyone does yield curve control. We can rank the currencies right there. We can rank uh-huh. whose balance sheet's going to grow fastest and most, and it's the U.S. And uh, if that happens, it stands to reason the dollar, all else equal, is going to underperform by more. And unlike Europe, Japan, China, Russia, et cetera, uh, those places don't have 65% of GDP, a capital that's going to go uh, bid wanted. Um, uh, yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I think to your point, uh, some of what we've been watching, maybe a great degree of what we've been watching over the last 10 years in terms of the movements of gold, the repatriations of gold, the central bank buying of gold, the uh, I, I moves by China to basically net out of dollars while swapping them into hard assets, uh, ports, et cetera, around the world. I, I think has probably in no small way been a recognition uh, of those societies that have the luxury to say, look, I don't need to get the timing right. I don't need to get the quarter right. right. I don't even need to get the year right. I know after 08, we know what's going to happen. And maybe it's five years, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's two years. We don't know, but we do know it's going to happen. So let's just start, you know, you sell when you sell when you can, not necessarily when you want to. And and that's what they've been doing. So it, you would be looking at, yeah, negative 65% of GDP saying sold to you fed. And yeah. yeah, I mean, that would get you to, you know, 22 trillion on the bond market right there. And then, the other thing that you have to think about in that whole equation is, is forever you hear, well, the euro dollar is a weapon we can use against the rest of the world. The euro dollar is a weapon we have used. And absolutely, 100%, yes. Downside is, is now shoe's going to be on the other foot because now that euro dollar is Great the point. Fed's problem. Yeah. That those are all going, you know, you're going to see debt, euro dollar debt spreads blow out. And is the Fed going to stand aside as that tanks the world economy? Probably not. Now I've seen estimates that the euro dollar market being anywhere from 30 to a hundred trillion. So what percentage of that, a good percentage of that probably would end up on the Fed's balance sheet as well. So when you look at it and those big numbers for which there's not a lot of great data out, you say, yeah, in extremis, could the Fed's balance sheet be 40, 50 trillion? Uh, a year ago, you would have said, yeah, in extremis. But to your point now, six, six months, yeah. you know, nine months forward, it's looking less and less in extremists. Let's think about things that could possibly go right if they do this, right? What, what it would take for this to work out for them. You know, if, if, if they are going to do, as I suspect you're right, and they are going to keep rates significantly below growth, nominal growth anyway, for, for some considerable time, the stimulus is going to come. They've demonstrated that and, and they have all the levers they can pull to really make that as easy as it's ever going to be to apply stimulus as far as the eye can see. Assuming that's all going to happen, what does it take for this to be a success, for this not to crater uh, all the things we've discussed previous to this? I, uh, to me, at this point, I think success is denoted by one of two things not happening. Um, a, an economic crisis where you literally have developed nations with, you know, Hoovervilles all over and, and, right. and you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, um, the Thornbeck uh, or the Steinbeck novel, right? Great. You don't have grapes of wrath all over the U.S. I think that's success, number one. I think the other thing that is also success is you don't have World War III. Um, uh, and, and, and or the rise of you know, truly uh, uh, bad, bad people running nations, not just, you know, people yeah. that offend other people. Um, so I think because we've allowed this problem to evolve so far without doing anything about it, I think those are our markers for success now, and, and particularly post-COVID. And so when we say what is success, this ties back to the point of, okay, now for the first time in 40 years, we're subjugating the bond market and the currency markets to support the middle and working classes. Because if from this point, if we keep subjugating the middle and working classes, they're just going to vote to, you know, they're going to, they're, they will vote in a Hitler. And then that's not going to be good for anybody. Uh, and so I think what success looks like is 
you know, U.S. wage growth explodes to 10% for three years, particularly among the working and middle classes. We get some sort of uh, debt forgiveness for colleges. Uh, um, uh, those two factors alone would represent a massive debt jubilee because if your wages are up yeah. 10% a year for three years and your mortgage is pinned at two by the Fed, you're delevering massively. Uh, ditto on the student loans. Uh, gee, that, that was, by the way, those factors help GDP uh, grow uh, in a more sustained basis because most of those people are going to turn around with their money that the government just gave them from, from forgiving student loans and buy a car, buy a house. Buy, and so yeah. that's inflationary. Uh, and it starts to feed on itself. And so I think what success looks like is uh, we wake up in two to three years and U.S. debt to GDP is no longer 130, it's 65. And GDP is, you know, 40 trillion. And, and it, a lot of that is is nominal growth, not real right, growth. Right. And, uh, you know, the wealth inequality has significantly been reduced relative to where it is today because all of these baby boomers with their bonds for safety are going to find that, you know, what buys a bond portfolio that buys them a house in Palm Beach today buys them, you know, uh, you know, a nice Audi uh, in, in, uh, in, in two or three years. And like, I think if managed politically well, um, that's that's a pretty good outcome. That I think is success, as crazy as that sounds, and and uh, I don't think it's that crazy anymore. Uh, to me, again, these processes were moving into COVID. Post COVID, it really changed the the, the the markers for success. To like, look, as long as we don't all kill each other or don't have everybody starving out in Hoovervilles, you know, these the, the, that's a good outcome. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting when you, when you talk about these as being marks of success. I know there'll be people listening to this thing. Geez, really? That's that's success, but you know, sadly, that's kind of where we are. It's been interesting if if you look down at um, the central banks down under, you know, a couple of things that they've done down there, I suspect, are going to be really important to watch. You know, in this, in New Zealand, obviously, they've they've made house prices now part of the central bank mandate, right, to to stop house prices going up so fast. Uh, in Australia, they're talking about you know allowing inflation to run hot until they get wage growth at 4%, right? A a any any inflation growth is going to be transitory, uh, is going to be deemed transitory until we get wage growth at 4%. I'm very interested to see how those things play out because we know it's a big brotherhood. We know they all talk to each other. We know that these ideas are being trialed in places where, no offense, Kiwis and Aussies, they don't matter quite so much <laughs> on the world stage. But you know, what do you make of moves like that? They 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 smack of desperation to me. I agree, and it's and it's it's really where we are. Unfortunately, you know, once you've the lack of political courage, a lack of political ability to do anything over the last fifty years. I mean, in that report we wrote, tying into the uh, the nineteen thirty one piece, said, look, and anybody with an actuarial table and a high school math education could figure out. Well, there were 70 million baby boomers born from 1946 to 1964 in the United yeah. States. It stands to reason right about now they'd be turning 65 and 70 and collecting a whole lot of benefits well above what they paid into the system. And boy, if we keep uh, advancing science, they'll probably live a heck of a lot longer. And so they, everyone's known this is coming, but it's just been such a political third wire that no one's ever been able to do anything about it. And quite frankly, in the aftermath of 08, this is something that I think continues to not be talked about. And I understand why, but uh, I think the real political cost of 08 was that it made it politically impossible to reform entitlements. After the way that that yeah. was handled, uh, you can't go to mom and pop around across America and say, well, we need you guys to, we need you guys to take a haircut on social security or Medicare. Uh, and so unfortunately, I, I think it's just one of these things. And again, it's, it's just human nature. People have asked me before, well, whose fault's fault? Whose fault is it? Is it the Fed's fault? Is it, it's, it's human nature. It's greed. It's fear. It's, you know, you, and that's why you can see these cycles play out over and over and why it's so useful to look back throughout history and say, okay, what did the cycle look like the last time? How did the politicians in power react? And, and, you know, same lack of courage, same promises they couldn't keep and, and, uh, you know, same desire, like you said, to get reelected. Let's talk now about what this means for, for assets, right? Because when I think about it, 
it, it seems pretty clear to me the road we're on. When I read your amazing work, it just reconfirms that. And I and I that honestly helps me so much laying out my own thoughts and understanding the roadmap. But what does this mean for investors in terms of if this plays out as we both think it will, how do investors look at that and and how should they be thinking? So I think for me, it is, you have to start, the way I think about it is really breaking it down into two worlds. And if I break it down into two worlds, world one base case is what we just discussed, which is we avoid um, you know, the, the, the Hooverville calamity or the, the World War III calamity. And we basically run this playbook of inflating away the debt. And in that world, uh, you, you want to own anything but bonds, basically. You want to <laughs> own uh, <laughs> uh, stocks, uh, trading cards, Bitcoin, uh, gold. And for me, I really, and I should probably back up and, and, and tear this because I think ultimately, when you have these crises, when you look back throughout history, I see charts from time to time. Look at what happened to the Dow, 1929 to 1933. It fell 90%, 100%. Yes, it did. However, the dollar was gold-packed, gold-backed, gold-packed. So what the Dow was really falling against from 29 to 33 was gold, not the dollar. Yeah. Because as soon as they took away that gold or devalued it, guess what happened to the Dow? And so yeah. I think you really think about things in terms of, uh, of everything's going to fall against gold. Um, and my thinking on that has really been in, 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 supplemented, I would say, in the last six to nine months in particular, um, you know, and against Bitcoin. You I can think Bitcoin say it. You can say it. Yeah, it's okay. You can say it. This is a, this, this is a friendly space. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to trigger anybody. No. <laughs> so I, I think everything's going to fall against Bitcoin and gold. Um, I, I think Bitcoin probably outperforms gold yep. with way more volatility for the reasons a number of people talked about. Uh, but I think stocks do well. And then within stocks, I think, again, because the U.S. under this world where basically everybody goes to yield curve control, all fiats are debased. Uh, you can say they're all going to do it at the same time. But if we all do it at the same time, the U.S. has the most to do the fastest uh, by virtue of the vestiges of the old system. And in that world, the dollar falls probably against the creditor currencies of the world, uh, euro, yuan, yen. Um, uh, and so when you look at a, at a world, okay. I want to own fiat currency away from Bitcoin and gold. I want to own fiat currency debasement, which is, um, you know, we think is is not just gold, Bitcoin, but I think it's also commodities. I think it's also uh, industrial equities uh, in the U.S. and, and elsewhere. Um, uh, I think you also want to own foreign equities uh, yeah. increasingly because when you look at uh, the percent of equity market cap that the U.S. makes up globally, it's about sixty percent of the global equity market cap is in the U.S. and place big economies like Europe or Japan and, and China are six, 7%. And so uh, just small amounts, if we go back to that this conversation of, of if the, you know, if when the US does YCC and we have uh, capital outflows as people move to get away from this weaker dollar relative to the others, just 10, 20% of the stock market in the US going to these other places are gonna be enormous yeah. positive impacts on them. Um, and and so I think I think that is a a, a wise play. Uh, we want to own um, we uh, we want to own negative real rates. In other words, uh, assets that benefit from uh, have a floating uh, you know floating fixed uh, floating value in place. So uh, one of the other big things within all this that we're discussing is if nominal GDP is going to rise five to ten in the ten years we pinned it to real rates that consensus right now says bottomed in the U.S. on a 10-year basis at negative 1.1% in August, I think real rates in the U.S. are going to negative 5, negative 10, or maybe lower before the end of the cycle. And so there's sometimes this discussion, well, I can only own value, I can only own growth, and what's going to do better in in a reflation? We've never seen a reflation like this in 100 years at least in the United States. And so you want to own the reflation, the traditional value reflation names, but I also think because of the dynamic where they're going to have to cap rates and send real yields significantly lower, obviously that's good for gold, it's good for Bitcoin, but I think it's good for tech and some of these growth names as well. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to think what the, uh, and then just the infrastructure play, I think is also yeah. ties into this. And again, your industrials, tech, um, commodities should benefit from that. So it's really this fiat debasement, floating fixed value, uh, floating base value duration and then infrastructure. Now that's my base case. That's one leg of the, what we talked about. The second leg to me 
that I'm watching for, I don't see happening. But if the United States gets a Boris Yeltsin to run China, if they get a Boris Yeltsin to run Russia, um, where suddenly this massive geopolitical change where they get a leader into China who turns around and sells off China to American corporations or sells off Russia to American corporations, that changes this game entirely. Uh, And that would force a drastic rethink to pretty much everything I've just talked about. Um, Because, well, a number of different reasons. So I'm watching for signs of that. Those don't seem likely to me for any number of reasons, but um, I, 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 it's something I watch for when people say, well, where, where could you be wrong? That's an area where I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, you're absolutely right. We, you, you get that kind of lean in charge. I mean, look, it's such a, a difficult thing to to think about right now, given uh, how how much stronger Xi's position is seemingly every day. But but that, that does bring us on to China. We haven't really talked much about China. Obviously, they've got problems of their own, but this this Western problem, does it play into their hands as much as you would think at face value? Or do the problems they face mean this is going to be just as big a struggle for them? I think they're in better position than we typically hear about in our Western media. Um, they, you know, it's interesting. There's there's this great passage in the Raven of Zurich where it said, you know, Europe at the height of its powers would make fun of the Chinese for their habit of weighing the metal money. And, and they the Europeans thought they were genera- two generations ahead of the Chinese. And it turns out they were a generation behind. And kind of the same thing, right? For what have we spent the last 20 years doing? Making fun of the Chinese for building bridges to nowhere and all this infrastructure to drive GDP growth. And why are they stockpiling all these commodities? And, and, and. And at some point, People a quorum. I've I've been saying for a long time, but I think a lot more people are be joining me. Going, that's actually pretty smart. Guess what? The Americans are going to print all these dollars, and all those dollars are chasing. You know, what are we hearing about commodity? Lumber doubled in in a quarter. What happens when we do another two years of this stimulus? You know, well, they just bought. People say, well, they bought a century's worth of cement in in ten years. Well, looking pretty darn smart right now. If 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 I'm half right, Um, that's you know the value of that cement's going up as they're standing on it. So. I do think their ability politically to uh, plan more than we have has benefited them in that way. Now, that doesn't mean it's all sunshine and roses for them. I think um, clearly they're, clearly to my eyes, there are um, moves afoot to try to isolate them. And I think there's this new great power competition between uh, the U.S. and, and, and China uh, in terms of, you know, basically divvying up allies, uh, who, who's, you know, the rules-based global order, who's going to govern it, et cetera. And, you know, it's interesting when you tie this back to the economic and, and um, what is the U.S. going to do with the stimulus? How long is GDP going to run above, above, uh, uh, above yields like this? For the first time since at least the Berlin Wall came down and, and maybe longer, we have a legit competitor and so it's not just sort of the MMT domestic crowd saying, hey, yeah, right. spend a whole bunch. We, now it is, it's a national security imperative for the U.S. economy to grow faster than China because at the end of the day, they got a lot more people. And, and if, if our State Department's going to sit down with Europe and say, you want to go with us, not China, uh, the Europeans are going, we got 30 years of build out for engineering firms in this, you know, in this belt and road thing. And, and they're building 30 more airports and, and, and all this stuff we've heard about. And what are you doing? And, and we're like, well, we're going to asphalt, you know, three highways. How's that? Right. That, that, that conversation has, has, has to change now. So I think ultimately, um, it ties back into this point that this that the U.S. stimulus is going to be way bigger and way longer yeah. than anybody thinks because there's this power competition with China now. Um, when if we can do these things where we are subjugating the bond market to support the middle and working class to drive GDP partly with this national security imperative, then boy, you got to be really excited about America, even if you're not excited about the dollar because. We, when you, when you, if you say, okay, you can put your money in the U.S. or you can put your money in China. Um, right now, China is yielding three percent, and they're growing whatever six percent or five percent. Even if those numbers are BS to some level, say they're growing four. There's certainly, you know, a better growth profile historically than what we've had. But 
you have to deal with all that other stuff that you prefer to look the other way, right? And and the rule of law and the potential capital controls and et cetera. Whereas in the U.S., man, you get you know no capital controls. You get the the, the, the traditional Anglo-American rule of law. All these things that sort of got us to where we are uh, as of a you know a couple decades ago. They're all still there. Um, yeah. So it's it, it's I don't know that it is a and I don't, that doesn't necessarily mean China loses per se. I just think as a rebalancing that takes place where, um, you know, they're gonna have to focus much more on their own consumption uh, than they have historically. So I, that's how I've kind of thought about it. But again, it's up in the air so much because a lot of it is really geopolitical um, yeah. you know, between us and them at this point. Yeah, you, you said something a while back, which I, which I, I let slip, but I bookmarked because you led me so perfectly into China. But I want to go back to this idea of, you know, negative rates of, five, maybe 10% in the US. Because it, it, again, it's like the $50 trillion balance sheet, right? It's one of those shocking ideas that you can't conceive of. But the longer this goes on, the more it becomes not just a potential, not just a likelihood, but almost a necessity. Just, just, just before we close, just, just paint me a picture of a world where the US has negative 5% real rates. I think it looks a lot like that world that that we were talking about before in terms of um, you know wage growth at ten and and you know mortgages at three and and uh, uh, capped by the Fed and Fed balance sheet exploding higher. I mean, I think the the real genesis of those comments for me have have long been um, a, a chart that's in an IMF white paper called the liquidation of government debt and. You know, I always joke around with people. I say they, they called it the liquidation of government debt. Uh, they were going to use how we're going to screw the hell out of bondholders, but it didn't have quite the same ring. And, <laughs> you know, Carmen Reinhart and Bell and Zabronsio write this white paper. I think they first wrote an edition of it in 11. They republished it in 2015. And they just lay out exactly how you go about financially repressing or inflating away sovereign debt. And they say in the report that, up to 2008, no one ever thought the sovereign debt markets in the West would ever have problems, but here we are. Um, and there are two charts in there in particular that show what happened to real rates the last time uh, the US and the West more broadly were as indebted as they are now, which was after World War II. And in the US, who suffered no war damage and was, was helping rebuild, et cetera, uh, US real rates in the immediate aftermath of World War II went to negative 14%. And, and we're in way worse financial shape now. I would argue that the damage we have suffered to our industrial base as a result of trade policies over the last 20 years is in some ways uh, echoing of the damage Europe and Japan saw from bombing during World War II, because it's just the, the, the capacity is just not here anymore. So when I say negative five to negative 10 percent, I'm actually being relatively conservative because it was it was negative 14 percent when we were the creditor to the world and the factory of the world uh, for a stretch of time. Um, when you look at where real rates went in nations that saw a lot of war damage or that lost or that were in the thick of the fight, whether that's the UK, Japan, Italy, France, um, you saw real rates there for a couple of years that went to negative 20 to as low as negative 60%, 60%. So basically, in that world, your, your, your sovereign bond market, the real value of it basically disappears in two to three yeah. years. And uh, that's great for the, you know, it, it's great for the creditor. The creditors are all the most powerful nations in the world um, this time around, just as they were then. And... Uh, for the first time in a long time, these bond markets are standing in between these powerful nations and, and what they need to do for the domestic electorates around the world. So I, I think that world of those negative rates, I think, I think it's increasingly likely that we're going to, if, if, if we bookmark today and then we, we look back on today, two years from now, we're going to say, that that one trillion, one point nine trillion from Biden, followed by the two point two five trillion with another promise two trillion to come. That was the moment where it should have been obvious where it was. This ain't going to stop. They're going to grow nominal GDP seven to ten. That's the shadow number. That's the that's the stealthy, the, the non gap number that they're targeting. And they'll report whatever. You know, if I'm them, I want GDP to run as fast as I can. And I'm going to try to, like, you know, not spook the bond market as long as they can, because. 
I think they are scared to death of YCC, of yield curve control, because it really is a Hotel California where they're going to check out, you know, they, they, they can check on any time they like, but they can't leave um, in terms of the balance sheet growth. So that's, I, I, I think it's the world we're heading into is this world starting this move towards negative five and negative 10% real rates and, and maybe lower. Well, buddy, I'm going to bookmark today and we will come back in a couple of years and, and, and either just sit back and smoke fat cigars or sit there holding our heads quietly sobbing with each other. But listen, <laughs> it's, been, it's been a fantastic conversation, as it always is. I, I love getting time to speak to you. I feel, I feel very lucky to have the chance to do this so often. Listen, for the, for the people listening to this, would you, if, they, if they email you and ask politely, would you share that 1931 report with them? I think it'd be a really interesting thing for people to have a chance to read and, and, and plus give them a great chance to, to look at some of your work and, and find out more about what you do. But for everyone listening, just let them know where they can find you. I've, I've plugged you often enough. They should know by now, but just in case they don't pay attention to me, tell them where they can find you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm at, I'm at, uh, uh, FFTT LLC.com for our website and what, what we're up to. And, uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Luke Groman, L U K E G R O M E N. Uh, and, pretty pretty active twitter feed obviously so uh just reach out there and yeah we can uh, we can certainly we can certainly follow up fantastic luke mate it's always a pleasure thank you so much give my best to the family and hopefully we will actually get to have a beer in person at some point soon that would be delightful thank you very much again for having me on it was uh, it's a great conversation always so i, I really enjoy uh, trading trading thoughts back and forth thanks man as I said at the top of the show, Luke has an almost preternatural ability to join a series of dots. And I've got to say, I never tire of kicking these big picture ideas around with him. Each time I get the chance to do that, I, I come away with many answers to my questions and, and a whole bunch more questions for which I then want answers. I mean, to me, there's nothing better than that. Anyway, all that remains is for me to thank you for listening. Uh, to remind you that if you don't follow me already on Twitter, you can do so very simply. You'll find me at TTMYGH. And don't forget to visit the website, www.grant-williams.com, and recommend the same to all your friends. I'll be back soon with another podcast. Thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.